Um, and yet I believe in uh, the, the greater natural system of the earth. And I believe of um, that the earth holds a timeline and a wisdom that no human could even begin to comprehend. Most recently, that moment, I mean, I was so connected to every bite those cows made, to the chirp of the red-winged blackbird, knowing that that seasons, even though we're gonna go into sub-zero this next week, the seasons are starting to change. Hey there, welcome to Roots to Reason. I'm Sarah, I'm your host, and I'm here with my colleagues, Kara, Sierra, Rowan, Abby, and Damara. And I'll tell you what, it's April 16th, 35 degrees, and snowing outside. <laughs> We're all curled up in the studio with big old sweatshirts and cups of coffee, and it's not too bad. Um, in fact, it's the perfect day to be talking with a couple of folks who are really elementally connected with the land and affected by things like spring snowstorms or a changing climate. Today we're interviewing Malou Anderson Ramirez and Bart Morris, um, two holistic and regenerative ranchers, one in the Bitterroot Valley, the other near the Yellowstone Basin. I'm really excited for this episode. I hope y'all will enjoy it as much as we did. These folks are so well-educated and speak so eloquently of the land that they are so very much connected to and that they depend upon, which we all depend upon. Let's jump in. Uh, my name is Molu Anderson Ramirez. I'm she, her. I am a wife, a mother, a rancher, um, a land steward, a community supporter. Um, I'm a lot of things. I'm a business owner. Um, I am from Tom Meyer Basin, Montana. So that north uh, is the neighboring Yellowstone Park near Gardner, Montana. What is something that's like really memorable about your childhood? Something that sort of inspires you to do what you do today? Um, definitely living and working on this ranch as a kiddo has, has inspired a lot of my work today. I'm really grateful for that opportunity and um, really grateful for the gift that my, my own girls can also experience that. Um, so I would say definitely work on the ranch and just being really connected early on to the natural systems and complex thinking and all, all that, th- all those things that came pretty natural here on the ranch. I just want you to describe your education and or experience that has got you, I guess, to your current position in life right now. <laughs> uh, education background, my, yes. Yeah, so I went to boarding school back East as a, as a, high schooler. Um, and that was kind of a fundamental part of our family. Education is really valued in our family. And, um, part of that is probably why, you know, we all have different careers outside of the ranch as well as the ranch itself. Um, and that's really helped us explore and stay open to opportunities to, you know, experiment. If, if we all were only working on the ranch and this was only our economic drive, we might not be as open to experimenting with new ways and taking that uh, risk, if you will. Um, so yeah, boarding school first, and then I went to, uh, university of Northern Colorado for a little while and then on to university of Missoula. And I got my degree from Bozeman in psychology. And from there, I actually traveled. I moved to California, I moved to Texas, 
I did a lot of work in uh, equine assisted therapies and animal assisted therapies. That's sort of my um, specialty in the social services part. Um, and then on to more social work in Texas, helping people transition from dependent lives into independent living. Um, that's where I met my husband in California, actually. Um, and, and he was doing similar work. So um, we decided to come back to the ranch when my parents were to doing another stint in Alaska and someone really needed to be here and taking care of things. Um, and it worked out really beautifully. I, um, I then went to what's called a ranching for profit school, and that's a certification in um, basically holistic range management and many other things including in, included in that, how to, how to make businesses profitable on ranches, which is a big, big challenge and farms. Um, and so that really shifted my paradigm and changed everything for me. I was not willing or ready to come back to a conventional uh, industrial, no, I shouldn't say industrial, conventional agricultural system. So that really helped motivate me. That school was a gift and it really helped motivate me to be excited about this new way of being connected. So here I am. And then, you know, the psychology of it all, I do a lot of work around conversations with coexistence, um, shared landscapes, uh, you know, and, and a lot of that entails talking to people who are often, who don't often share the same values and ethics as I do. And so my background in psychology and social, social services has really helped me uh, hone in on my narrative and my story and the way I speak to others and, and receive others and, and just finding a little bit more compassion for, you know, all of us as we kind of figure this all out. So... Could you maybe define what holistic farming is? There's a lot of listeners that probably don't know what that is. Sure. Um, holistic, well, the word holistic is whole. And so it's really looking at the whole living complex systems that we are a part of and taking it a step further um, for our family specifically. You're really not dominating that system as people and humans have tended to do naturally and um history, you know, historically. Um, and so really looking at that complex system as a way to, as a mimicker, I, you know, not so much as a teacher, but as an example of, of how things are successful and not successful in the natural system. So yeah, looking at the overall whole, not just grasses and not just grass resources, but soils and microbial life and micro and macro um, organisms and just how they're all sort of working together. And I guess the the last part, the really important part for me personally with a holistic frame of mind is um, really being more in the place of process and understanding instead of trying to find an answer to everything, you know, really just trying to better understand the systems that we are around and, and within. You mentioned that there are sometimes harder conversations that you need to have with like people that maybe disagree with you. Do you come across those conversations often? I used to a lot more. Yeah. Sorry, my puppy. Hold on one second. <laughs> I think conversations, um, when, when we first started this work, they were somewhat more difficult. Um, I would say not a lot, thankfully. No, I think, you know, I think there's a lot of new, thankfully, there's a lot of new data that's, you know, is pretty obvious. And regardless of where you fall politically or ethically, there's some things that are, you know, kind of, inarguable at this point. Um, it's really more semantics around those conversations. Like what are, what are the, what's the language we're using around it? And so again, the, the piece of, um, I, I don't know, it's just, it, it begs, the, it 
how important language is and when we're explaining these things, because the way we say one thing can completely divide, you know, people and their thoughts and opinions when really all along we basically think and believe the same thing, but, you know, somehow the language set us uh, against each other. You did mention previous that you do have a background in psychology that helps you handle conversations with people who have different beliefs with you. Walk us through how you handle those conversations. Well, there's two parts to it, and I hope I can stay on track. Um, the, the psychology part for me personally is understanding that um, we all have a story. We all come and look at the world through the lens of our stories. Um, and so there's a deep, you can find, it's easier for me personally to find compassion for people who are difficult for me to talk to or have such a strong disbelief in something I might not. Because again, I can see from the psychology background of human behavior and behavior analysis that we are what, you know, we are doing what we are and what we have known. And so um, that helps me find some middle ground for people, you know, that I really just want to, you know, just, well, anyway, um, so there's that. And so that's the sort of the humility of human to human and, you know, understanding all that. And as well as my own, you know, I'm also seeing my own views through my narrative and my lens, and it, it can be distorted from time to time, just like everyone else. Um, and then the other side of it that I've learned later is through, through experience of using those same tools is really just the importance of sort of deep listening and um, really, again, swallowing that humility to listen to someone in a way that you're truly wanting to be curious in their story and to be um, to be part of their story, you know, instead of waiting for your turn to have a rebuttal or to add to their story. Um, you know, I don't I don't believe we practice enough deep listening. And that's one of the big problems right now with that we face. And I don't think people know how to listen anymore. And um so, yeah, so I think those two things together, there's been time and time again, data around, you know, people really start to consider someone else's point of view if they feel like they've been deeply listened to. Um, that's really what breaks the ice for, thing, for people. How do you view the interactions with people that disagree with you um, on your beliefs about climate change? Mm. Um, <clears throat> yeah, I think it's something similar where, you know, there is this, uh, you know, agree to disagree component. And so that, that helps. Um, but the other is again, just finding and seeing people where they are and, um, almost shape shifting in a positive way. I mean, I used to say this about my dad, you know, he, he's always been a diplomat. He's always been a very well respected and liked person in every community he's ever been in. And he's spent most, most of his career working with native people. So he, you know, as a white man and as a, as a leadership role in their communities, he was always well-respected. Um, and I think a big part of that is he was a shapeshifter and it is, and that, which means that he would sort of almost go into their thought process and feel what they're feeling. And even if he didn't agree with it, it felt like, I, you know, I hear you. I feel what you're saying. And so I would say that's a big tool that I use. Um, and it's such a wonderful, natural way, again, to sort of set the ego aside and um, really see people where they are. And, so, and sometimes you're just like, what? And, and it makes no sense. Um, and, you know, there's a time and place for that too. There's courage and there's vulnerability and being able to step out and say, I hear you and I see you and I feel what you're saying, but that's, you know, ludicrous. <laughs> 
And it's just all in the timing and the feel of the conversation. What areas of your life will climate change affect? Um, Mm -hmm. Kind of what things do you think about that give you some unsettling feeling? I think the first thing that comes up for me as a rancher, well, I should say, then I start to think as a mother, you know, I think about my children's future and what, what is being left for them. Um, and yet I believe in uh, the, the greater natural system of the earth. And I believe of um, that the earth holds a timeline and a wisdom that no human could even begin to comprehend. Um, and so that's where the hope comes in and the trust that, you know, that, she or they or you know whatever it it, it will be okay and it, you know we might not be okay but it will um and so there's that as a mother and then uh in terms of ranching and land you know there's very big concerns again it's that it's that paradox again where it's like on one hand i'm concerned because i see just in my lifetime you know bigger storms more dramatic weather that is worrisome or, or should i say unsettling again um, you know, water issues, drought issues. Um, when when you're looking at either raising plants for cattle or raising cattle when you don't have enough water, that's a big concern. Diversity, you know, I really worry about the diversity of the future um, and just what climate's doing to many wildlife species. Um, so yeah, I, I would say those are both concerns and um, yeah. Kind of transitioning a little bit to more of like going into maybe some of your holistic practices and kind of like how that works with climate change or like works to help combat climate change and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I live on the ranch and I work on the ranch and uh, we do do the, our best we can to holistically graze, which basically means like keeping cattle on the move, moving them through paddock systems. Um so that is substantial right there. I'd say that's the biggest thing we do. Um, by doing that, we're also building soils and we're sequestering carbon. So, you know, all those things that we that have just come out. And I really want to be careful because we're not, none of us are experts. We're all so new at this that we're hopeful that this is something, but we're not, you know, like, this is absolutely something that's helping. Um, we're hopeful. Um, regenerative ag, you know, a lot of people's focus on the soil and the carbon aspect of regenerative ag. And in our wild world, it's a lot about diversity and, and how do we ranch alongside grizzly bears and wolves, you know, understanding that climate, you can't talk, you can't address climate, um, issues without addressing grizzly bear habitat, without addressing safe and clean water, without addressing, you know, badger infestations, like it's all connected. And, um, and people tend to glom onto one thing or the other. Um, so yeah, really doing our part at supporting, um, a really thriving, um, ecosystem and trying our best to support as much diversity in that ecosystem as we can, not just on the wildlife side, but also on the plant species, grass species in the soil, the mineral content. Um, and so looking at that too, you know, looking at that larger, landscape piece of, of things that are happening when we're just here for just us, like not even a blink. So. Coming to kind of the close of our questions um, in 10 years, do you think our society will be affected by climate change? If so, in what ways? Mm, Absolutely. Yeah. I think we'll continue seeing what we're seeing now, just, you know, we're just going to continue on this path that we've never felt before. We've never seen before. And there's going to be a lot of changes and unknowns. 
Um, and I really hope that we're going to also have a lot of changes around policy and laws and um, with climate in, in mind. So, um, you know, I also know that this is a slow moving ship and it's going to take a long time to, to change that steering wheel, you know, to sort of turn it into a better direction in terms of climate. Um, so it's going to be, yeah, it'll be interesting in 10 years. Um, let's hope that there's nothing too catastrophic. And, um, and we can still just keep getting better and better at, at changing policy, changing choices, um, all the things. So. Malou has such a beautiful faith and trust in the natural systems that we all belong to. I think that was something that we were all really impressed by and inspired by. Also, the way that her background in psychology and social science influences the way that she interacts with people is so inspiring and speaks directly to what we're trying to do with this podcast. Uh, Make us all a little bit more aware of the influencing factors behind a person's attitude or opinion or behavior. We really appreciated this conversation with Malou. And now we're going to hear from Bart, um, who... Similarly to Malou, has a very strong connection with uh, the land that supports us. So enjoy. My name is Bart Morris. I own Oxbow Cattle Company um, with my wife, Wendy. It's a regenerative grass finish beef business here in Missoula, Montana. Um, and then also, did you grow up in Missoula, or where are you from originally? No, I was born and raised in Wyoming. I grew up south of Billings, um, in the Bighorn Basin of Wyoming there, um, on the, around Grable. Um, yeah, and, um, I grew up on a small acreage there. I was work, grew up working for ranches, um, in the summers and that. My dad was a, um, biologist and, um, and range range conservationist and my mom was a school teacher and um I just had a huge love for the outdoors and I had a huge love for um for the land and and the animals in it and I went to school at University of Wyoming got my bachelor's degree in wildlife biology and range management and um met my beautiful wife Wendy there she grew up on a ranch in northeastern Colorado it's a conventional commodity um, ranch where they had about a thousand mother cows and two thousand head feedlot CAFO right out her back door, and um, we we would go down and help calve and take care of those animals during the winter and stuff, feed for her mom and and that. And so, why specifically you you knew you wanted to go back into ranching? What was the main draw of that, especially in Missoula? You know, I mean it. I got into wildlife management um, and that because I wanted to make a difference on the landscape. You know, my dad, I can remember running transects with my dad um, as a, when I was super young, like looking at um, impacts from from wildlife on browse and cattle on browse and in riparian areas and the sensitivity to our environment and how we managed um, our domestic um, animals as well as the wild animals in there and and I just wanted to have an impact and I guess that was my my way of um, 
quote unquote changing the world is through the through our environment and so that's why I pursued wildlife not only did I love the animals but I really wanted to to be able to improve the land and make it better for those animals the people that have the most impact on the land are the ranchers and farmers cuz they're they're not over these massive thousands of acres of forest or or whatever but they're like on like for example we run on 5000 acres here but we intimately know it we intimately impact it every single day and um we can make or break this land with the way way we do things and so so <clears throat> seeing that and and wanting that desire to improve land and regenerate it and and that um i knew i had to be more in tune with the land and the only way to do that is ranch um and then with that, with your regenerative ranching, what are the specific aspects of regenerative ranching that are a little bit different than uh, traditional ranching styles? Um, regenerative ranching, I guess it's, you know, and there's all these terms, you know, like sustainable, regenerative, um, and a lot of them are used as marketing tools. Um, I don't use them as marketing tools. I use them as what I believe in, and the, the word I'm stuck on is regenerative, and um, Natalie Berkman, who we just hired and works for us now, um, she hated the word cause she, because it gets kind of abused and used. And But it's the only word that it really kind of can explain what your question is. And and the way I see regenerative is leaving leaving things better than we found it. And so what we're what we're wanting to do, which is is ch- challenging, but um, you can do it but it's not a perfectly linear line up, but um, we want to take all this land that is in our care and we want to improve it until the day we die. Um, And on large, large scale operations as well as um, tiny operations. And, and it's just, it's just putting things in context, um, putting the land first, the animal second, then us third. And then also, um, also working with mother nature and yeah the the challenges there that lie within that is though is i can't always put the land first and i don't always put the land first there's times when i put myself first there's times when i put the um animals first and there's times when i put the land first and it's all a balance it's not an extreme one way or another it's somewhere in the middle and just trying to do better um Mm -hmm. by all that and changing these paradigms. I mean, that's the huge thing, especially, you know, I was super lucky. I didn't think so at the time, like not taking over Wendy's mom's place. We were lucky to start on our own because we didn't have all these built in. This is the way we've done it. Um, and that may sound easy to break away from that, but it's not easy. I mean, it is ingrained in these fifth and sixth um, generation family ranches. And because the fifth generations before them have been successful. And so why would you change what you're doing if you're successful? It sounds suicidal, it sounds it sounds really crazy. And when these younger generations that I've seen do come in and make these changes, they do fail, they do go backwards. And you almost have to go backwards to get forwards. And, and that's a really, really hard pill to swallow, especially when you have the elders watching because they're sitting there saying, I told you so. And and they were right because you are going backwards, but you got to be looking farther forward than tomorrow. That's the other thing. We're not patient as humans. Um. So switching it up a little bit less about ranching now and 
more towards your childhood. Um, who were your role models and inspirations while you were growing up? You know, um, my mom and dad were both big time um, inspiration and role models for me. And I lost them both here in the last two years. So so it, I've, that's really been um, really I didn't know they were such big role models and how huge they were to me. It's one of those things you don't know what you have till till it's gone kind of a deal. And then it really hits you like a baseball bat um, in the head, in the side of the head. But yeah, they were huge. They shaped me in so many ways. Um, and they are who I am, both genetics as well as the way I act and the way I do things. And and along with them, as I as I grew up, they introduced me to so many amazing humans along the way that, you know, um, led me in, in different day, different ways. You know, I, Bob Trebelcock, he was a game warden in our, in our area that was a, he had a huge impact on me and the direction I wanted to go. I saw how he was, the role he played in the community as well as, um, with the wildlife and landscape and, and I looked up to that along with what my dad did, along with what my mom did. And so so those those would probably be my parents first and foremost. And then I'd say Bob is right there. So With that, do you think you developed your core values specifically from your parents and Bob? Or were there other outside factors as well? I, I definitely developed my core values from my parents. There's no doubt about that. And then... I mean, they gave me the foundation. And then from there, um, working in law enforcement as a young, like I started when I was 21 as a game warden. I had no business packing a gun, but I was. Um, but, you know, just seeing that aspect of life and um, and the amazing humans I was around in that law enforcement and the way they cared about the resource as well as the people and that, that helped develop my core values. and And it just... You know, dealing with people, like when you catch somebody doing something wrong, it doesn't matter if they're a two or three-year-old or a 40-year-old. Um, and the, initially, the first thing a person wants to do is hide what they've been doing wrong. And that was really obvious to me as a game warden. And not everybody does any, not, not, everybody, not everybody does things on purpose wrong. You just make mistakes or you make lacks of, a lack of judgment at times. And so what I did was I gave everybody the chance for to tell me one lie. And I would tell them that when I was game warden. I was like, you, if they would lie to me, I'd be like, okay, that was your lie. Now you need to be honest with me. And it was amazing how many people would come around on the second time and, and be honest with you. And, and so what that really instilled in me was, you know, we have an opportunity and a choice to choose how we, we deal with things. And, um, and it's okay not to be perfect, and it's okay to make bad choices. It's okay to make mistakes, but the number one most important thing is we can is to fess up to them, and so and to be honest. I guess is what about honest and integrity, which are huge to my wife and I and our business. Um, it's huge to our business, and and so so that law enforcement and the mentors around me um, really taught that. And then the biggest thing my mom taught me was was the golden rule was treat others how you want to be treated. And I think if, if we could do that as a society, man, we'd be, we'd be a whole different world. So really the only thing we have control over is our attitude and how we deal with, with what is given to us. But 
we are shaped from a very, very young age, but we can make choices and change that along the way. And, and my wife, I guess, besides my mom and my dad, my wife, Wendy, is probably the, one of the biggest role models and big influences in my life and shaped me who I am. Um, and one thing that she's really taught me is, is being able to choose. We can choose our thoughts, which make which are the result is our actions. And um, by being able to do that, we can really change um, how we deal with a situation and how we react to a situation. And um, so it isn't, it isn't inherently who we are. It's how we choose to react to it. And she's taught me that. I mean, she's an amazing, amazing human. And um, I strive to be like her, but um you know, with all this said, I still throw two-year-old temper tantrums. I feel sorry for myself. I emotionally just let that ride. I don't make all the, all the, um, I can't always, or I don't choose, I choose not always to follow my, or to react appropriately with my brain. I let my emotions run. And so by no means am I even close to perfect. It's, I'll be working on all this the rest of my life. So, um, and do you think kind of having that awareness, um, does this affect like conversations you have with other people who specifically don't necessarily share the same views as you? Totally. I mean, totally. Yeah. Like, especially with like COVID, um, it's really shown that the difference in people's belief systems and that, and, um, and you know, I don't really, honestly, I don't care what people, what their belief systems are. I don't care you know, if what way you believe, what I care about, and is um, essentially that golden rule is treating others how you want to be treated. We don't have to all agree. In fact, we're better off if we don't all agree. That's what pushes us and changes us. And like, I'm pretty confident in the ways I do things, but the best, so the best conversations I have is when somebody brings up, asks me like, why are you doing that? Well, I don't agree with that. Because that, what that pushes me to think outside the box and really... Um, all boxes do is is direct us one way. It doesn't allow us to continue to evolve and move and change. And you got to be super humble, and you got to be able to say, um, "I don't know everything." And really, all all we want to know is something. But um, really, we don't get that. And with this whole, what we're doing is like, for example, is a lot of my really good friends are conventional commodity cowboys. But I can sit and I can have conversations with them, even though we don't agree with with lots of things. But in the end, we're still friends and we appreciate each other as an individual. And that shaping and and that um, that open mindedness and that willingness to know or know that I'm not right on everything um, allows those relationships to be there. I guess we've talked about this a little bit, but what is your? Do you have a specific definition of the environment? I guess the environment is everything around me, everything. I mean, that's the butterflies to the soil microbes, to the cows that I have the fortunate to raise, to to the elk, to the, like those neotropical migrant birds that fly up from the south. I mean, to the plants, that's the, the quote unquote bad ones, such as ventanata and cheatgrass and leafy spurge to to the Idaho Idaho fescues and the mushrooms, the fungi, and 
and the bacteria. I mean, the environment is all in, it's everything. And the biggest thing is that we can't forget is the humans. I mean, we're the ones that are manipulating this every day. We are part of that environment. We are part of this this deal. And if we don't consider our where we're us playing a major role in this, along with all those other species things, um, I guess that's how I see it. It's it, that, it's all encompassing. Is there a specific memory or time that you felt very aware or connected to your environment? I mean, every day. Um, yesterday morning, I had the luxury to, um, Wendy and I were, right now we're supplement feeding our, our cows and moving them daily onto old stockpile grass. And about a week and a half ago, the red winged blackbird showed back up and, um, and we were just out there. It was a gorgeous morning. I mean, it was like 35, 40 degrees in February. It was so quiet and the red winged blackbirds were um, singing and you could hear the cows eating, you know, the grass and moving around and, and, um, you know, that most recently that moment, I mean, I was so connected to every bite those cows made to the chirp of the red winged blackbird, knowing that, that seasons, even though we're going to go into sub zero this next week, the seasons are starting to change and the smell of the smells that were around of how we're we're fertilizing the soil with our our animals and and looking down at the grass and seeing the two three inch green shoots and being aware that photosynthesis is occurring even in the middle of february and those roots are living and growing and there's this whole world of growth and change and that and i mean i felt that experience yesterday and it just goes deeper and deeper for me so and when i was younger that I mean, I would just revel in the, in an observation and the opportunity to see that. Well, I see it enough now that I just, over time in that, I just take it a little more for granted because I see it so often. And so those moments when I can really take a step back and be like, almost feel like it was the first time I've saw it, seen it again is, um, is huge. And and so I, I definitely take things for granted and I definitely miss things. And, but then you get these hard lessons like the choices I made last April that really makes you fine tune that again and appreciate it. The other thing is, is, is when we bring in these new employees, which we've only, our last one was with us for three and a half years and she, she moved on to bigger and better things, which is awesome. But bringing in new blood and new people as well as like talking with you guys and and bringing people out from the peas farm and and stuff like that what it does is it 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 checks me and it's like it's such a gift to be able to do this every day and to bring all this these motivated young young um, people in that can see it through a different different lens I get to peer through that lens a little bit and that really really changes things for me on that and it really kind of hits me upside the head on those deals but i definitely do take things for granted and try not to but i'm just human so how do you deal with these interactions um with people ranchers or not who may 
ha disagree with your thoughts and opinions specifically on climate change? First and foremost, I don't try to change them with my words. Um, I want to show them. I want to be able to provide them not with opinions, but facts. And and facts is a, kind of a gray word anymore anyway, too. But like data that shows what we've been doing and, and not just data on the ground. Like I have this much percent organic matter increase. Um, that really doesn't speak to those folks either. But what does speak to them is by doing it this way, we're making a living at doing it this. And this is what our gross margin per unit is. And the dollars is what really speaks to other people. And so if I can take my ecologically, my regenerative practices and turn that around to make an economically viable business, the folks that have had success building economically viable businesses, but if mine is more economically viable, then, and that's the proof is in the pudding when I can tell them, and they all ask that, is um, then, then it makes our conversations mean a lot more. And it's our actions as well as showing them on the ground how my animals are doing. I mean, ranchers and cowboys alike, you know, you can walk out and look at a cow in somebody's field and you can tell a lot about them. And you can walk out into somebody's field and look at the ground and you can tell even more. And so if we let those two things do the talking for us, um, we're way farther ahead than people listening to me. What do you believe is like the biggest factor that inhibits conversations um, about climate change and the environment? I, I think the biggest factor is people's concerns to, um, to offend the other or to be able or to not to lose a friendship, to draw a line in the sand and not agree. And, and it's a lot easier to avoid. It, it's always easier to avoid then hit it straight on. When in, in reality, if we did have those conversations, when we wanted to avoid them, we would always come up, we would usually, not always, there's no always or, or never, but we would most of the time come out of those things even better and with a better understanding. I think the fear, fear drives everything. I think the fear of losing a friendship or just disagreement alone I mean, it's just uncomfortable. And so that that social aspect of it, and then you take our social media these days, because everybody can just put it out there on social media and not have to look a person in the eye. It's way harder when you have a, when you look somebody in the eye. And when you say conversation, what I think about is like you and I having a conversation face to face, not a conversation on Facebook, because those aren't conversations. Those are one-sided um, stories. Um, but a conversation, is, it's hard to look somebody in the eye and, and disagree with them. Um, but I think that's really what is lost and what we need to do. So I think that's the holdup. From your previous experiences, how do you hope to communicate with others about environmental issues or climate change in the future? How I hope to communicate environmental issues and with others is is I guess, I just, this is, this is truly how I hope to communicate with people is through our beef. Um, in, our, in our mission statement, um, 
we say we want to produce a product that nourishes the body and the soul. And we, we want the story, the life of that amazing animal that they're about to consume or that one of their, their partners about to consume if they're a vegetarian, which we have people like that, that the story behind that animal tells the story of, of what we're doing to try to make this world a better place and trying to combat the changes or work with the changes that are being where that we're presented with. I mean that every bite of that we want that bite to be a conscious bite, not just a no brainer. So what you're doing is really, really cool and I really appreciate you guys involving agriculture in the whole talk because when you when you start when people start to talk about the environment and climate change, a lot of times the most important people are left left from the table. They're not invited to the table and and to me that's one of the first ones that should be there is agriculture. I'm super optimistic. And the only reason I'm super optimistic is because of these young folks that I get a chance to visit with every once in a while. They are so much more conscious about what they put in their body, what they put on their body, and what they put on their land that I do believe that the future is in really good hands. Um, and that's you guys, and you guys putting this podcast together and doing what you're doing. This plants so many seeds, and this does so many positive things um, that you guys should be proud and you should be excited about the future. Not negative about it, not sad about it that things are changing, because I've never seen a generation like your guys's that is so aware. I wasn't aware at your age. I cared, but I wasn't aware. You guys are aware, which is so, so cool. So keep doing what you're doing and spread that message and, and all that. So, and I thank you for doing all that. We were so thankful for the time that we got to spend talking with Malou and with Bart. Um, and something that I think we all really valued hearing was for folks that spend so much time outside uh, working with cattle and thinking about the land and the weather and the environment and climate, um, it was really exciting to learn just how much time they spend thinking about people as well and about how they interact with people. And as we go along through these episodes, you'll start to see how the major themes come into conversation with one another. In the past episode with Burke and Bob, we talked a lot about being vulnerable and open-minded in conversation with people and the value of community and connection and stopping to talk and have these conversations. And it was really exciting to think about that episode today in conversation with Bart and Malou, who are directly impacted by the political and environmental decisions that are made and that often make these conversations so tense, we learn from them that it is possible to be very passionate about the land and the environment, very connected to it, while still being deeply connected to the people around you. We hope some of these themes are resonating with you. I hope that you'll keep following along with us and learn more about yourselves in the context of having difficult environmental conversations.
As always, we'd like to thank our contributing artists, Rowan Ulrig and Aubrey Frizzle, for the music and art that make this show possible. We'd also like to thank you, our listeners. Um, It's a pleasure to have you. Until next time. See you later.